Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Come on, man. This Ben Jarofsky Show, Benny J Bonus Interview is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show as I speak. It's Thursday, September 3rd, 2020. Of course, you could be listening anytime. It's a podcast. Uh, the front page headline of my beloved bright one, the Chicago Sun-Times, home delivered as always. I've already discussed this at length uh, on the regular live show. Michael Joseph Madigan, power play by Illinois House Republicans. They're forcing a hearing on Michael Madigan's combat dealings. I've already announced that I've done a complete flip-flop. Bang! It's the sound effect for it. I am now urging Michael Madigan uh, to stay in office. Uh, I have been calling for him to step down. Uh, I think the Republicans are a bunch of freaking hypocrites. Uh, and until they urge Donald Trump to step down, I see no reason to uh, call Michael Madigan to step down. So that's my position of the day. Knowing me, I'm liable to flip-flop tomorrow. We'll see how that goes. All right. Uh, as I do with all bonus guests, I ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself. Distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Uh, my name is Jim Coogan. I am a trial lawyer. Uh, work at Dwyer and Coogan. And occasionally I try to educate Ben on legal matters. <laughs> Occasionally, once a month. It's been way too long. I let the month of August slide by without uh, having Mr. Coogan come on to enlighten me. Uh, we often call this uh, segment of the show, How Is This Legal? As I said, just utter bafflement. It's something Donald Trump is doing. It, Jim, how is this legal? Lately, it's been more like, how is Bill Barr allowed to hold on to his job as attorney general? Uh, so we're going to be dealing with many issues, uh, Stormy Daniels update, Michael Flynn update, uh, Trump and his taxes update, uh, what Barr is up to update. And then I'll probably ask Jim to weigh in on Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, the, uh, Antioch shooter who went up to uh, Kenosha and shot three people, killing two of them. And what uh, legal strategies Jim expects from that trial, whenever it comes down to it. So let's just start with uh, the breaking news that you got uh, sent me this morning, Jim. I didn't even, it's actually two weeks old, but I just learned about it. Uh, quirky story. We talked a lot about Stormy Daniels at one point. Uh, she apparently won the right to make Donald Trump pay her legal fees. So I consider that a great triumph for humankind. Why don't you give people a little background uh, on what's going on here? Yeah, I mean, uh, a surprising instance where one of Donald Trump's sketchy legal dealings backfired on him. Uh, this was, this, so this is, it's not the biggest news in the world, but it is certainly the center of one of the largest stories that we've been dealing with as a country for the last few years, that being uh, that, that Michael Cohen, uh, Donald Trump's longtime fixer and personal attorney who has now written a book, who has now confessed to his crimes. Uh, you know, he was charged with the 
conspiracy to commit election fraud. And, and that was that all centered around Donald Trump having a prior affair with a uh, porn actress that goes by the name of Stormy Daniels in her professional career. Uh, right before the election in 2016, he, he used Cohen to pay her off so that the issue wouldn't uh, interfere with his chances of winning the presidential election, especially in light of the disgusting comments that were leaked from the video with uh, Billy Bush right around the same time. Uh, so after the after all that happened, after Stormy Daniels was paid off, after they realized that this was all a sketchy deal where cash was, was uh, given to Michael Cohen and Michael Cohen was writing checks to pay off Stormy Daniels and to pay off uh, another model who Trump apparently had an affair with. Um, then there was a defamation lawsuit that was filed over Trump saying that this was a lie, that, that, that Stormy Daniels was making all this up. And it all went back to the agreement itself that called for whoever loses in, in, the, the, in a lawsuit that stemmed from this agreement would have to pay the other's legal fees. Now, the, the irony, and this is one of the hilarious things about the Donald Trump world, in the agreement, it referred to him by one of his many pseudonyms. So in the agreement, it actually referred to him as David Dennison. That's one of the one of these yes. one of these nutball names that he came up with himself. Like when he used to yeah. he used to call in stock information and gossip to the New York tabloids back in the '80s and use fictitious names to try to pump up his own image. Um, so, and I swear to you, this really happened. One of the arguments that his lawyers made was that well, this really this agreement really related to David Dennison. And it had nothing to do with Donald Trump, and therefore Donald Trump shouldn't be on the hook for this. And, I mean, it's just, I don't know what these judges must be thinking when they're listening to these arguments. But um, in any event, the upshot that came out about two weeks ago is that Trump has been ruled to owe Stormy Daniels now $44,100 in attorney's fees. And I just, uh, brings back what I was saying earlier. I'm going to go on this riff. I'm going to really try to contain myself, Jim. I don't want to get too carried away. I get too fired up at this. But this is why I've done that flip-flop on Michael Joseph Madigan. I've spent my whole life as a good government reform. I got this in quotes. Chicago journalist uh, railing against the... Uh, the machine tactics of Democrats like Michael Madigan, but them, and usually, by the way, all these Republicans are egging me on, going, yeah, Ben, keep doing it, keep doing it. But the utter silence of the Republican Party in the face of such obvious deceit and these just evil machinations of Donald Trump, it's just, it's just mind-boggling their silence. So that, I'm not saying you, Jim, should advocate uh, anything on behalf of Michael Madigan is probably the kiss of death in legal circles. But I'm through with it, man. Until the Republicans <laughs> apply the same standards to Donald Trump that they want all the rest of us to apply to our Democratic politicians, I am through with it. Anyway, that's my little. So where is where is this thing ultimately going, the Stormy Daniels uh, case? Well, I mean, at this point, I would not be surprised if Trump's lawyers appealed the necessity uh, to pay the attorney's fees. But th but then again, it's this is one of those things where um, attorney's fees. So the, the United States diverted from the British system in a few different ways when we first brought over all of our you know legal traditions, because obviously the when the United States first started, we 
inherited the British legal system and built upon it from there. So most of the time, you don't pay the other side's legal fees in this country. It's very rare. So there might be a statute that calls for it, that if you sue a nursing home and you win, that they have to pay attorney's fees. That's that's built into Illinois law, for example, because you can imagine a situation where, uh, you know, a, an elderly person might not have a huge case, but if they can't afford to hire a lawyer and their case might only be worth twenty or $30,000, uh, they don't really have access to the courts without a provision that says they get awarded their legal fees on top of whatever their injury might be worth. Um, that's in order to, it's like to protect people. So you might have a law that says in certain special, it's really rare. And whoever else on behalf of Trump negotiated this, or I'm sorry, on behalf of David Dennison negotiated this <laughs> for against Stephanie Clifford, they put that in there to intimidate her because that's been Donald Trump's MO since like the 70s. I will sue you back. I will sue you harder. I have more money than you. I have more expensive lawyers. And, and it basically is always intended to silence and intimidate the other party. So building this into this contract was almost certainly Trump's de- decision or, you know, a standard boilerplate from Cohen to intimidate Stephanie Clifford from ever actually trying to sue Trump or coming forward and, and, uh, talking about it in violation of the agreement and, you know, to, to forfeit her money and so on. So here it totally backfired. So it would, they might appeal this, this is where I was getting to is they certainly could appeal that, but on what basis, you know, the, the, the amount, maybe they could say it was too much. I haven't read the, um, whatever receipts were actually shown to the judge to decide how much time that the attorneys were actually supposed to be compensated for. But most of the time judges are pretty conservative with that sort of thing. They don't, they, they'll usually take the 200 hours that a lawyer claims he spent on a case and cut it by 20 or 30 percent or actually go line by line and figure out if every single phone call should be included or something like that. So uh, it could be the last we hear of it. I guess it hasn't seemingly hurt Trump politically all this time. His people don't care. His supporters don't care. Uh, but I can't really think it's helping him to have this story back out there yet again. No, it hurts. Uh, there's so you can expect me to talk a lot about it. Uh, it hurts Donald Trump. Yeah, you're right when you say his supporters don't care. They proved that in 2016 when they uh, voted from the first time, uh, and their loyalty voters. That's a key strategy of his. That's why he's trying to scare them uh, with his tactics of hate. So uh, anything that um, puts a spotlight on the unethical wheeling and dealing machinations of Donald Trump uh, and uh, his low rent rendezvous with Stormy Daniels and how he tried to pay her off and anything that puts a uh, light on that, Jim, uh, only helps, in my humble opinion, get support, uh, rally support against him. So for no other reason, I welcome it and I thank that judge for ruling in favor of Stormy Daniels, uh, my personal hero uh, in this saga. All right, l- uh, let's move on to another update. Michael Flynn, you've been very good at chronicling uh, the legal escapades of Michael Flynn, a a former, briefly, a top uh, advisor to Donald Trump. I think he lasted for maybe a month, that's what my memory says, before uh, he left back in 2017. What's the latest on Michael Flynn? Yeah, it was only about a month before Trump was forced to uh, have that awkward conversation with Jim Comey and asking him to let it all go, Um, which, of course, brought us into the special prosecutor or the, the... 
uh, appointed prosecutor in that whole saga. And I, I bring it up to you just to irritate you about Michael Flynn virtually every show because it seems like there's a legal development around this case almost every time we talk. But it's, it, it's not to be lost in all of the legal noise surrounding the Trump chaos in this presidency. Um, all the all of the ways that he's undermined the cause of justice in this country uh, basically are are exemplified in this particular case. Cronyism, using the, the justice system to help his friends, to punish his enemies, uh, manipulating the system so that uh, even the Department of Justice is now basically a co-conspirator in trying to drop these charges. And then lastly, as, as uh, you know, because you saw the decision that came out a couple months ago, even the decision that originally came out that I'll talk about in a second was written by a Trump-appointed federal judge and demonstrates the problem of having so many Trump-appointed federal judges in this system now. Um, so what's happening now is when Michael Flynn pled guilty, I want to emphasize this, he pled guilty twice to federal district court judge Emmett Sullivan open court, a, a, a known or a, a defendant who is uh, schooled in the law with counsel, no surprises, intelligent man, very accomplished military intelligence officer in the United States military. Okay, there, there's no reason why this wasn't some guy who got snowballed into a, a false guilty plea because he didn't know the law or because he was rolled with a, you know, he was beaten in an interrogation or something like that. This was all above board. And since the point in time where he pled guilty, he never got sentenced. And eventually he brought in a new lawyer who was like a Fox News talking head. And they came up with all these crazy conspiracy theories as to why uh, his the charges shouldn't stick in the first place. And then when the time finally came that he was going to have, which were rejected by Sullivan, he didn't buy any of that nonsense because, again, the man already pled guilty. Um, so then Sullivan was finally going to issue his sentence for what Flynn had done. And at that point, William Barr, attorney general at that point for maybe a few months or a year, intervened and made it so that they suddenly were going to drop the case altogether. I mean, this does not happen. This was genuinely an unprecedented thing. Why would the government have, I mean, you think about it, other than the partisanship here, why would the government go through all the trouble of doing this investigation, getting a record, charging someone, getting a conviction, and then say this is all, you know, we actually buy these crazy Fox News talking points and we're, we're going to drop all this because this is so unfair to General Flynn. Um, fundamentally, we can't forget what this was about. This was about Mike Flynn talking to a Russian, I guess, ass, a Russian agent, basically a, a diplomatic agent, but still a Russian agent, while before Trump was even in office. This is it was a really shady thing to be doing in the first place. This is during a period back in 2017 when Jared Kushner was trying to figure out how he could create a back channel to secretly talk to the Russians without the U.S. intelligence services knowing. So this was a serious underlying thing. This isn't just some process crime, the usual nonsense that, that Republicans use to, to brush over and, and ignore the crimes that are actually committed by the people surrounding Trump. So what's happened right now is after the D Justice Department said, we don't even want you to issue a, a ruling anymore, Judge. Don't sentence him. Sullivan didn't like that. 
his response was, wait a minute, this man already pled guilty. What are you doing? So he brought in a separate judge to kind of evaluate the situation. And when he did that, Flynn's lawyers appealed it to the D.C. Circuit Court. What that meant was they were basically telling, asking the appeals court to stop Sullivan in his tracks, to stop him from doing anything further. Their, their argument was essentially, hey, if the DOJ doesn't care about this, the judge should back off. He's got no business doing anything here anymore. And, and Sullivan was legitimately saying, well, do I? Because I feel like I should, but I'll, you know, I have to go with whatever the court says here. And the initial ruling was a two-to-one ruling in Flynn's favor, saying that this bizarre, twisted, very, very political way of dropping these charges should stand. Notably, like I mentioned a minute ago, that decision was written by a Trump-appointed judge, Judge Rao, and just bought every argument from the Flynn people. Now, the new legal development that's happened, which I think is very, very telling, one of the things that could happen at the federal appeals level is you first have your your case heard by three-judge panel, a randomly assigned three-judge panel. The next step that you can take if you don't like what they decided is ask for the entire circuit to hear your case. And in this situation, there were 10 judges that could be part of that. They call it an en banc hearing. So if you have the full circuit say, yeah, if enough of them vote, yes, we do, we want to participate in, in rehearing this one more time, then they'll do it. doesn't happen in every case. But in this case, their decision was actually eight to two against Flint. So what that means is all seven of the additional judges who were not part of the original appeal disagreed with that decision, disagreed with the two judges that were trying to help get this case thrown out. And their basic ruling is, the guy pled guilty, and Judge Sullivan hasn't even had a chance to rule on this yet, and you're asking for the appellate court to step in before the, the judge has actually issued his sentence. So it, it may or may, I mean, what happens if it goes back down to the district court? It, they could still appeal it again after he's actually sentenced because this has been so procedurally screwed up. But the, the bottom line to all this is I think this is a win for the justice system because it it validates Judge Sullivan's concerns that this whole thing was being hijacked for political reasons. And the fact that eight just eight appellate court justices felt this way mm-hmm. is a strong statement that we're, we're not going like we, it may eventually happen, but we're going to at least fight having the whole justice system politicized in favor of Donald Trump's friends. Uh, just a procedural point. When you mentioned that uh, a request was made for the full uh, appellate court uh, to weigh in, as, as opposed to just the, the three members, the subset of it, uh, who made that request? Good question. So there was counsel, uh, in this case, on behalf of Sullivan, on behalf of the judge. Got it. So the judge, a judge effectively appealed to another body of judges uh, to reconsider uh, the subsets ruling. Wow. It's, it's weird. And part of that, part of the reason for that also, I think it includes the fact that this is, it's really a question of, they were trying to stop him from even having a ruling in the case that was, yeah. you know, it's, it's the, the procedural point at which this appeal was taken to preempt him from even, making a sentencing decision. So uh, asking for a, a further clarification, normally judges are not in that position. They're normally not doing any of these things. But he was put in this position because the prosecutor just abdicated its job on, you know, in service of the Trump administration for political reasons. 
And I would just like to make uh, one of my own points here that you may not necessarily agree with, but I'm going to contrast this. These legal maneuverings, these legal machinations, these appeals and reappeals of not even the main issue, which can just delay forever, it seems like, or till the election's over, more to the point, uh, a decision on Michael Flynn, uh, and maybe just exhaust everybody to the point where they just let go and Flynn gets to walk. Contrast that with the law and order rhetoric coming out of Donald Trump when it comes to decisions made by police officers to shoot somebody. Well, that was just a, he made that, he, he had no choice, he had to do it, he, he, he thought he might have a knife, he thought he might have a gun, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Just the contrast. The bending over backward to appease Michael Flynn and make sure that every single he has every single legal justice is just meted out on a daily basis uh, in our city, in our country. And it's just staggering. How long has this been going on? These appeals and reappeals and been over years. Well, right? yeah, because I think he was actually pled guilty sometime at the end of 2017. So, yeah, two years, two and a half years, maybe. Two and a half years, and so this will go on. And we have a federal judge, Sullivan, who's fighting the Justice Department, fighting other judicial appointees. You would figure the judges would look out for each other. You know what I'm saying? Uh, But those two judges that ruled against Sullivan, their loyalty is to Donald Trump first uh, and their judicial brethren second. That's astounding. So where do you think this is going to go? This uh, Well, I mean, I don't, there is a chance that uh, on behalf of Flynn, there could be an appeal to the Supreme Court on this case. Uh, That would be one of their procedural options. That's really their only procedural option, unless they decide that they may as well just go back to um, the district court and see what happens with the sentencing and then do an appeal of the sentence because they can absolutely do that at that point. They wouldn't, it sounds crazy. I'm sure to some of the listeners that they're not precluded from doing it yet again, uh, once that happens. But on the other hand, they could very well uh, at least attempt to appeal it to the Supreme court. They, it may not be a case that the United States Supreme court is interested in hearing, um, you know, if you if you look at the decisions that we talked about at length from the end of the term regarding presidential power, you kind of get the sense that this is the kind of case that would still be a six to three or seven to two decision. Just saying, look, there's no basis in law to stop a judge from continuing with a sentencing hearing just because the the justice department doesn't want to proceed with the case anymore. If in this, in this unique situation, you look, if, if he hadn't already pled guilty and they dropped the case, well, that happens every day in every federal district court in the country. Uh, prosecutions begin and some are not continued, but this, this was a guilty plea. It was entered. It was, it was fully and fu- with full knowledge uh, entered and before the court sworn again. And by the way, you get sworn in when you're pleading guilty, you know, you, you, Give an oath to tell the truth and the whole truth, uh, nothing but the truth. So help you God, when you actually plead guilty to a crime in open court. So, you know, the, again, even going back on that, it seems like he's now he's lying about yet another thing, yeah. or at least he's inconsistent. Uh, I, uh, at the risk of uh, opening myself up to an accusation of being incredibly naive, I've kind of flip flopped a bit on Judge Roberts, uh, the Chief Justice. I'm now starting to think, Jim, that 
he's ready to rule against Trump pretty much across the board on these matters of executive authority, you know, where Donald Trump just sort of wants to, the right to be the despot uh, that can do whatever he wants. I have no doubt that the the four Trumpsters of the court are just sold and whatever Trump tells them. But I'm starting to think that John Roberts will go with the liberals uh, on matters like that. We'll have to see. It may come down to it. But my sense is that's where he—that's sort of the indication he's been giving. Uh, do you have any uh, thoughts about that? Well, my first thought about that is I—I I suspect that John Roberts' first—if uh, he had a choice, his—he would never admit this, but his first choice would be that Donald Trump no longer be president, and he wouldn't have to rule on any of these. <laughs> well, because here's the thing: excesses of executive power only serve the kind of Republican interest that I think John Roberts is interested in to a certain degree. The, the, it's the bigger legislative changes. It's, it's the undermining of uh, the Civil Rights Act or the Voting Rights Act. It's the undermining of um, housing law or women's health care rights. Those are the kind of things that stand the test of time afterwards. I mean, mm-hmm. because, because even, a, even a hardcore right-winger might be a little bit nervous about electing a king. So they may, you know, they may want, no matter how strongly they believe in the unitary executive theory, which we've discussed on this show before, that that's the federalist society, right-wing lawyer concept that the president basically has the powers of a king. They have all the powers of government. They shouldn't be restrained by Congress and they shouldn't be restrained by the courts. A judge of all people probably doesn't believe that a hundred percent, even though I'm sure he's, he's fine with plenty of executive excesses as long as it's a Republican. Um, but he wouldn't want to create precedent that a Democrat could possibly take advantage of with too much executive authority, because even though you and I both know Democrats don't really roll like that, (laughs) they're not, they're not great at abusing their power. Um, you know, Republicans are certainly more skeptical of that notion. They they don't they don't have the same view that you and I have, which is generally speaking, Democrats they usually squander their political power yes. or or use about half of it and are definitely afraid of abusing it. Which but but that's the point, because most of the time that's what ends up happening for the last at least the last forty years in this country. Oh. Folks who believe in government and not abusing it end up becoming Democrats because can't stomach being on the other side of it. You know, that's why they become a Democrat, even if they don't have strong feelings about uh, social issues or, or even budgetary issues. They just look at government as something to try to preserve as opposed to something to, to abuse. All right. Uh, speaking of Republicans who are only too happy to abuse their power, let's move on to William Barr, uh, our current attorney general, the chief law enforcement officer in the country. God help us all. There's at least three instances uh, in the last couple of weeks where he has just shown, in my humble opinion, just to be uh, a lackey for Donald Trump. Why don't you run through uh, one, of, one of your favorite topics, the excesses of William Barr? Can I just say, I don't know if you get enough credit sometimes because you come from a journalist and a columnist background, but that was a dynamite transition. You're like, a, you're like a full-fledged interview radio man with that one. Thanks, uh, that was pretty good. That was right. That was perfectly, perfectly moved us from uh, abuse of power into 
where I think it's being abused pretty badly. So I just Thank had to you. say I that first. I appreciate that. That's just me coughing, uh, laughing and coughing. It's not COVID. Go ahead. Sure. Well, he's, he's in his attic folks. I can attest to it. Um, so yeah, it's been an interesting couple of weeks. There's always something to update here, but um, it seems like right now we have finally, you know, it's not surprising. Today's 60 days from November 3rd. So we, we are in the final stretches of the electoral season and the things that Trump and then Barr at his behest are engaged in now are like a full frontal assault on the legitimacy of this upcoming election. So you've got, you've got these unfounded wacky uh, screeds coming from the president daily, weekly about mail-in ballots, about too many mail-in ballots, about mail-in ballot fraud. Um, So this has been ongoing for a while. And now, uh, Barr is out there echoing it. And there's there's a weird, there's kind of a one-two punch with these two that happens a lot where Trump is unhinged and crazy and uses all caps and screams and yells and gives a sweaty, you know, press conference about something and, and tries to talk over a helicopter. And then somebody will later, because of it's a legal issue, apropos, I mean, they'll ask, William Barr about it. He was asked about it when he was finally brought before Congress to testify. I think that was about maybe a month ago. There were a few questions about how election, uh, how the election was shaping up, whether there was interference, uh, whether he had concerns that if people were voting at greater levels through the mail, that that would be problematic, including all the the back and forth about the mail system, which uh, I, I think it's it's been quiet for a week, but I think that's an enormous risk to the whole country, to the legitimacy of the election that we're sort of not talking about again. And it's not because the issues have been fixed. But anyway, um, Barr has this echo effect that, that'll happen where Trump will say something and then he'll be asked about, well, what do you think? You're, you're actually the attorney general. This is your job. What are you doing to investigate this? Or what are you doing to make this system work better as opposed to just sowing doubt? And he doesn't have any interest apparently because of the words that he uses in creating more confidence in the system or using the powers of the justice justice department to, I don't know, go out there and coordinate with States and make sure that their election laws are in line with federal guidelines and make sure that they've got systems in place to make sure that people can all vote and that they'll be socially distanced and that the, the elect, the uh, vote by mail systems will all work. He's not doing any of that. Instead, he's echoing, the nonsensical and not reality-based claims of the president that mail-in fraud, mail-in voting will lead to rampant and large wide-scale fraud and, and including one of the more offensive things that I've ever seen an attorney general or somebody who's got that position of power say, uh, if you saw the clip the other day that the president actually yesterday, time doesn't mean a lot these days, but I think it was yesterday and he's standing there in North Carolina and he actually tells North Carolinians that they should vote by mail and then vote in person because that's his cute way of saying you should all test the system. Like he's mocking the American electoral system. If it's so great, you guys should all go commit fraud and see if it gets caught or not, which is completely insane but then when you ask the attorney general the same question one of his comments in response to the question of well what do you think about the president telling people this because by the way 
it's a fraud to entice or induce people, or I'm sorry, it's a felony to entice or induce someone to commit voter fraud, by the way. It's just, just throwing that out there. So what the president did was illegal. But um, one of the comments that Barr made in response was, well, I don't know the state law on that. Hmm. Like, as in he doesn't know whether or not North Carolina has a statute that prohibits voter fraud or voting twice, which is preposterous. Yeah. And I'm sure that if you if he had to, you know, if you held him to it and said, I'll give you a thousand bucks right now, if you could cite the statute, he probably wouldn't know it. But you don't have to know the statute to know that that's illegal. He's a lawyer. The man's been a government lawyer for half of his 45 year career. So he absolutely knows the reason why he won't say it is because he is engaged in the same operation to sow doubt, to sow chaos and to undermine Americans' faith and confidence in this election, which is so dangerous, and I, it, it just—I don't feel like it could possibly be said enough. So I don't—I never feel like I'm overstating it because it's just so dangerous. And that's—that's that's just a little snapshot of some of the election stuff that he's been doing at least the last week. That's that—that that one was pretty outrageous. Uh, and again, I like to say, and I'm—I'm I'm writing this column as I listen to you. I've. Never heard Michael Joseph Madigan uh, urging people to vote twice. You know, the joke is in Chicago, vote uh, early, vote often. I've actually never heard Michael Madigan uh, make that recommendation. But Donald Trump has effectively done uh, made that recommendation. Uh, and he's at least supported the confusion of William Barr. I'm not quite sure that's illegal. I got to check the statute book. Well, and uh, keep in mind, Ben, there's th- yeah. there's a, a smaller thing. I don't even know if I mentioned it to you this week, but. There was a smaller development that totally went under the radar that also involves the Department of Justice in its role in ensuring the integrity of the election. There's a position at the DOJ that's in charge of that. And there's a guy who had been there for like the last 15 years or something yeah. like that. Career guy, nonpartisan, you know, imagine your caricature of a boring, straight-laced lawyer who follows the rules and who is in government because he follows the rules. That's apparently the profile of this gentleman. Uh, Brad Wegman is, was his, is his name. He's, he's still around, but he's not in the same position at the DOJ. So within two and a half months of the election, this happened days ago, they removed that person from his position that he's been in for, for more than a decade when that's his actual job and put somebody in there who is pre, prior uh, prosecutions focused on cybersecurity cases. Maybe he knows election law. I'm sure he knows it fairly well if he's a uh, Department of Justice lawyer. But why are you doing that right now? Why? It's like why did they do all those make all those management changes at the the Postal Service right now? Yeah. Within uh, less than 100 days of the election. So yeah. so there's another part that I think I don't know if that's a directly an abuse of power, but it seems like it's he does not deserve the benefit of the doubt, and it can't possibly make the election process more secure. No, absolutely not. That's not what they're looking for. Uh, then the other point about uh, William Barr, and I think you mentioned this to me when we were talking before, uh, is that uh, he's giving credence to Trump's babbling about thugs on a plane, <laughs> which is truly one of the, uh, you know, just on, a, on a, t- a tangent here, Donald Trump attempting to shake the voters' confidence uh, in the mental capacities of Joe Biden is astounding. It given is. that a day doesn't pass where Donald Trump 
does it never fails to say something batshit crazy that <laughs> makes me wonder if this guy has disconnected from rational thought years ago. And I think uh, that's the legal definition of what he's been doing too. Yes. Yes, it's a legal doctrine, batshit crazy. Uh so yeah, thugs on the planes. I had I had missed this. I think it was you to mention. Barb, what did he say? He was gonna look into this? Yeah, well, the clip from I think he was on CNN. Essentially, it was a situation where you could tell he was trying to have it both ways. He wasn't going to say that he knew of a specific situation because I'm, I'm me personally, I'm fairly confident that this is all a creation of the Trump psychosis in his brain. Um, but on the other hand, he certainly wasn't going to undermine Dear Leader on television. So he had to say something about, yeah, you know, there's there have been some complaints, and it, of course it was vague. There have been some complaints, and there we'll we'll be doing some investigations. And when pressed for details, of course he doesn't have them. You know, I mean, obviously there may not in this case probably, but there's always some truth to to when a prosecutor says I can't give you all the details because it's an ongoing investigation. You know, that's that's a legitimate thing because you don't yeah. want to out somebody that you're investigating if it turns out that they shouldn't be charged with a crime. But it's also a crutch that you can lean on pretty hard when you have no specifics <laughs> and you're merely trying to kind of prop up a, a, a weird, you know, f- fever dream fantasy uh, <laughs> that's, that's being employed here. Again, you know, where, where were those people even headed? First they were headed to DC, then they were headed to North Carolina. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's crazy. And that happens the same week that you have actual Trump supporters caravanning to downtown Portland to yeah. cause trouble. So, you know, they're invoking the, the specter of Antifa or left-wing thugs who apparently also like to travel by airplane because that's an easy way to get around if you're just a, a somebody out to do violence and you, you want to check in on an airline and make sure they have your identity when you're going to do that, right? Um, you have that, that crazy specter being invoked on one side. When you actually have violence being committed or at least people who are going out seeking a fight yeah. on behalf of the president on the other side. Um, so it's you just your head spins. And I guess that may be a perfect transition into the other Trump supporter that was out there seeking violence. Uh, but I don't mean to step on the uh, no, we'll get to Kyle uh, Rittenhouse. Before we get to him, I just uh, <laughs> uh, I want to ask you for the update on uh, one of my uh, favorite little Trump scandals, uh, a tax return gate. Uh, he's he promised uh, to uh, reveal his taxes. Then he claimed, well, he couldn't do it because the uh, the IRS was auditing him, which is completely untrue. Uh, not that they're auditing him untrue, meaning that you can't release your taxes if you're being audited. He just made that up uh, as he went along. Uh, and meanwhile, he's fighting like hell uh, to from being forced to reveal his taxes. This gets back to what Michael Flynn, all the machinations, the legal machinations of Michael Flynn uh, and the Justice Department to avoid punishing Michael Flynn. Here we are, uh, one appeal after another by Donald Trump, uh, fighting like hell uh, to be uh, releasing his taxes uh, at the request of Attorney General New York. Why don't you uh, update us on tax return gate? Yeah, so I don't know if you knew this, but apparently the Cyrus Vance... Uh, District Attorney of Manhattan investigation into Trump's finances. That is actually the worst witch hunt in American history. 
according <laughs> to Trump. So it's not yeah. Russia anymore. It's not. Uh, yeah. It's not Russia Gate. It's the, I don't know. There's a lot of witch hunts. They're all the worst. It's a. I guess they're all tied for first. But um, so these are the. There are twin investigations into Donald Trump and his financial manipulations, both in the state of New York. One is the criminal investigation by Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance. That was the subject of one of the Supreme Court cases over whether Trump had any special exemption uh, from having his financial institutions respond to subpoenas for his financial records, which he lost conclusively. And when it went back to the district court level, the his lawyers went in and made another series of arguments, which they were rejected conclusively. Um, so I think that is actually the subject of a potential appeal again, which I don't. I mean, honestly, most people would never be in a position to continuously appeal the disclosure of their documents from other entities. This isn't even the, that they're asking the Trump organization or Donald Trump himself to turn things over, uh, because if that were the case, they might have some Fifth Amendment protections in, against what happens in these financial dealings and dealings. You have to do business with some banks, counterparties. So yeah. that's the obvious way to get around that is district attorneys everywhere and, and state's attorneys, if you're here in Illinois, just go to the source, go to the bank, get the records from your accountant or your bank or your whoever, tax advisor. And so that's what we're doing here. And so, yeah, you, you've you hit the nail on the head that this is just a delay tactic to keep waiting and waiting and waiting before the district, the, the Manhattan grand jury would actually see these records. And I, I mentioned it's a twin and their twin investigations going on. The other side of this is Letitia James is the uh, attorney general for the state of New York. So she can engage in a civil investigation and that's what she's chosen to do stemming from some of the testimony of our friend Michael Cohen when he testified before Congress and laid out some of the different ways that Trump would commit financial fraud, uh, tax fraud and insurance fraud and, and, uh, bank fraud, wire fraud, by manipulating the value of his assets. I mean, mm-hmm. at, a, at a minimum, you could, I mean, real estate's real estate, right? Some Somebody might pay a million dollars for a property and somebody else would pay 500000 And all that really matters is what you can get on the market that day or when you're trying to make that transaction. But that's different from signing a financial disclosure to a bank saying, my vineyard in Virginia is worth $23 million to one institution and then lowballing it to another institution and saying it's only worth $6 million so you can avoid property taxes or whatever the thing was that they're investigating. I don't know all the details, but that's what Cohen laid out that he would, he would prop up either inflate or deflate the numbers whenever it was convenient for him. Uh, And, and some people call that fraud. Most, uh, (laughs) most lawyers do anyway. So, um, so that's, that's one of the other things that's happening here is, uh, the invest, the civil investigation has advanced to the point where Letitia James has demanded the testimony from, from one Eric Trump, the, one of the, the Trump princes to explain what they've been doing since, as everybody knows, they had the very public display of showing how, uh, Donald isn't in charge of his businesses while he's president, but instead, Don Jr. and Eric are in charge of it. So uh, she's looking for his testimony. They're looking for more documentation. My guess is they're being stonewalled at every step and we'll have to continue to do this the hard way. Yeah. And uh, the all these appeals are being uh, paid for by Trump or the taxpayers? 
Well, I mean, the, the taxpayers in New York or in this in the county uh, in the district attorney's case are paying for the prosecutors because they pay yeah. that in their taxes. But I think that the the lawyers for the Trump organization who are pressing these cases, I assume, are being paid for by Trump. But it wouldn't surprise me if that money was coming from political donors or the RNC or some other manipulation. Because um, the one thing that's been true throughout the man's history is that he doesn't pay for anything or pays as little as possible for everything. But if you yeah. can get somebody else to pay for it, he certainly will. Yeah. Well, in terms of Michael Flynn, uh, I believe uh, who now who's paying Michael those who's paying the attorney fees to uh, to in the case of Michael Flynn. Do you know, that's a good question. I do know that those lawyers, um, that's Joseph to Geneva and I can't recall his wife's. No, it's not Geneva. It's a different uh, Fox News lawyer. I don't recall what her name is. I'm sorry. I had it on the other show that we were talking yeah. about him, but um, who knows? They could be, she could be doing a pro bono because it's a huge um, media opportunity for her, or she could be paid by some other Trump benefactor because uh, there's nothing that would restrict somebody who wants to do that. Like if they, if they, if it was really a campaign contribution, that could be a problem, but you wouldn't have to say that it was a campaign contribution. You would just say, I'm doing this because I love General Flynn and all of he's done for the country. So I'm going to, you know, voluntarily throw a couple hundred thousand dollars towards his legal defense. Yeah. Uh, all right. Now we'll move over uh, to Kyle Rittenhouse, who is the uh, the man from Antioch who took a rifle, went across uh, state lines to Kenosha and ended up uh, shooting three people, killing two uh, a couple about a week ago or so. And uh, day two, of the civil unrest, I urge everybody to check out the interview with Mark Garino that I did yesterday, Washington Post correspondent one more time, uh, where he talks about his um, what he saw, what he witnessed uh, on the streets of Kenosha that night. And it's uh, pretty upsetting stuff. But uh, anyway, uh, Kyle Rittenhouse's attorney has made it clear, uh, Jim, that he intends to have a very aggressive counterattack, a very aggressive defense of Kyle who is already being championed uh, on the right as a patriot. Uh, people are urging, including Brian Urlacher of the Chicago Bears, uh, that uh, the case against Rittenhouse be dropped. Uh, and uh, he's become a hero right up there with Michael Flynn. Uh, Michael Cohen would have been a hero, too, but he turned against Trump. So now they treat him uh I, th I believe what they do is they call him a rat, uh, showing their like mobster mentality. Uh, we'll probably be talking about this for a while to come, uh, Jim, as uh, this story unfolds. But what do, what's your sense of the type of defense uh, that the lawyers will employ on behalf of Kyle Rittenhouse? Well, speaking of mob mentality or the president's mob language, I mean, his, his language about Kenosha has been that of like a mob boss you know that's a it's a nice city you have up there it'd be a shame if i if i if the federal troops left and all of a sudden uh chaos ensued again i mean it's yeah. it's uh or or just claiming that everything stopped immediately the moment that federal troops arrived implying that only his power can save people from chaos and destruction and, and violence um it's a very sick and twisted view, view of the world but here we are mm -hmm. so yeah i mean we've got this uh, pretty accomplished lawyer from Atlanta that's that's taken over this uh, defense for Mr. Rittenhouse, uh, L. Lynn Wood. I, mm -hmm. You probably saw that. So the, the words are going to be self-defense, 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 self-defense. I, I think it's the kind of thing that we went through in the city of Chicago 
watching the trial review on a daily basis and all the all the uh, reporting from the Laquan McDonald murder, um, you know, you have a basically a self defense or a, or some kind of a mitigating circumstances defense, but it doesn't make sense in the broader context. You know, you you can. It's only in a very narrow way could anybody possibly claim self-defense in this case because you kind of have to just ignore the fact that the man, boy, I don't know, I guess he's being charged as an adult, got in his vehicle strapped with his AR-15 and drove all the way to this place. He didn't own property there. He wasn't defending his uncle's house. He jumped into the fray, and as soon as there was a fray, started shooting. So, you know, I, I, I am fully expecting that the defense will effectively be while he's there even though he's the one carrying the assault rifle his response was reasonable because he perceived himself to be under a threat uh think of george zimmerman mm-hmm. think of think of any of these stand your ground kind of things that have come up in the past i don't i don't think wisconsin has an explicit has the same stand your ground statute that florida does but now i'm curious now that we're talking about it whether that would be uh, one of the things that they could invoke. But if it's not explicit, and Lord help us, stand your ground is way too generous to the person doing the shooting, but um, there would certainly be, he, he would have available to him some kind of a self-defense claim that I'm I'm guessing that's what they're going to do with this. I mean, they could change their minds at some point. They always have the chance to change their plea later on if that's what the evidence is going to show, that they have no chance of, of proving that defense. Yeah, and uh, I also look for them if they really soon to start denigrating in any way they can uh, the reputations of the people he shot, Huber, Rosenbaum, any anything they could leak uh, that would turn the public's opinion against them. Uh, they probably start leaking stuff about uh, a Jacob Blake just to throw him into the pool as well. Right. Uh, like somehow Rittenhouse was afraid of Jacob Blake and that's why he was shooting these guys. Yeah. Anything to uh, turn potential church. I don't know how they're going to, uh, they, they may make a motion to move the trial. I suppose that may uh, be, be a card they play, um, but it's going to be pretty ugly. It's my guess before. Yeah. All said done. Well, um, and, and I mean, at the end of the day, as a country, I know that this is being politicized. So here we are and we're stuck. But if you broke this down and just removed the political context from it, how could anybody think that you're going to make this country safer, a more safer, more generous, more calm place to live if people can insert themselves into what is already a chaotic situation, armed with deadly force, and then if they decide to shoot somebody while they're there, they can defend themselves and get out of it because they felt pressure or scared or something while they were there. I mean, if, if, if the general, well, at least it used to be before Trump, if, if the Republican, uh, one of their abiding philosophies was uh, personal responsibility and taking responsibility for your actions, then his actions started the minute that he got in a vehicle and started driving up there. You know, he, he put himself in this situation uh and whether somebody actually assaulted him first, I don't think that's what the evidence, that's what the, at least the videos that you have out there so far, it, that's not what they show. I'm sure that he may say something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when you're the, when you're the shooter, 
you have the convenient situation at trial of the decedent not being there to testify yeah. and explain his side of the story. So, yeah, Jim Coogan, that's a good place as I need to end uh, today's discussion. I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us. And I won't let this much time pass between interviews again. Of course, we were on uh, vacation for a couple of weeks. So uh, good to talk to you, Jim. 